Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 21. Gloriana? I hardly knew her. The number of the ungodly has so much grown in power that there is no place left in the world which they have not tried to corrupt with their most wicked doctrines. And among others, Elizabeth, the pretended Queen of England and the servant of crime, has assisted in this, with whom, as in a sanctuary, the most pernicious of all have found refuge. This very woman, having seized the crown and monstrously usurped the place of supreme head of the church in all England, to gather with the chief authority and jurisdiction belonging to it, has once again reduced this same kingdom, which had already been restored to the Catholic faith and to good fruits, to a miserable ruin. Regnans in Excelsis, issued by Pope Pius V, 1570. Conceit doeth much, even when there is an apparent disease. A man feareth he is bewitched, is troubleth all the powers of his mind, that distempereth his body, maketh great alterations in it, and bringeth sundry griefs. George Gifford's A Dialogue Concerning Witches and Witchcrafts, from 1593. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last time, we took a look at the reigns of Henry VIII and his eldest surviving legitimate children, Edward VI and Mary I, and how they faced supernatural threats and legislated against the practice of witchcraft, in a time of English history fraught with succession worries, regencies, religious upheaval, and just general instability. Today, we continue our journey through early modern England into the reign of debatably one of the greatest monarchs in the country's history, the Virgin Queen, Gloriana Elizabeth I. After the short reigns of her half-siblings, Elizabeth's 44 years on the throne provided England with some much-needed stability. It was during her reign that England would firmly establish the royal supremacy of the monarch over the church, pivoting the kingdom away from Roman Catholicism and facing down its Catholic rivals on land and sea, most famously with the defeat of the Spanish Armada. It was during her rule that the English theatre and arts flourished, giving the world the likes of Shakespeare, Marlowe and Spencer. Despite never marrying, hence the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth arranged for the peaceful inheritance of her kingdom to her northern neighbour, James VI of Scotland, quite remarkable considering the alternatives of invasion or civil war. It was not, however, all sunshine and daisies during Gloriana's reign. The first tentative efforts in colonising the New World began on her order, and Elizabeth's armies were particularly brutal in the pacification of Ireland, as well as dealing with several Catholic uprisings. Born to Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in September 1533, Elizabeth was declared illegitimate with the arrest and execution of her mother in 1536. Her father, ever the romantic, married Jane Seymour just 11 days after he had his last wife beheaded. Jane did ultimately bear him the son that he'd craved, only to die less than two weeks later from complications from the birth. 
Now firmly supplanted in the succession, in fact as well as in name, Elizabeth would nevertheless receive a first-class education, being fluent in French, Italian, Spanish, and Flemish, and able to write in Latin and Italian, as well as her native English, as well as being passable in French and Greek. Later in her life, she was said to have also been competent in speaking Welsh, Cornish, Scottish Gaelic, and Irish Gaelic. After Henry died and Edward became king, Elizabeth went to live with her father's final wife, Catherine Parr, and her half-brother's uncle, Thomas Seymour. Seymour was apparently rather forward with the 14-year-old Elizabeth, and when Parr died in 1548, he expressed interest in marrying her. This was the last straw for his brother, Edward Seymour, the Lord Protector of the Young King, who quite possibly rightly saw this as a plot to usurp his own authority through such an intimate connection with the King's sister. Thomas was arrested and executed in March 1549. So much for brotherly love. As we touched on last time, when Edward died and Mary acceded the throne, things got a little rough for Elizabeth. Mary was a devout Catholic, whereas Elizabeth had been raised along Protestant lines. When dissent grew against Mary's religious and political policies, including the marriage to Philip of Spain, it was Elizabeth who became the focal point of any such rebellion, whether she was actually involved or not. After one such rebellion, Wyatt's Rebellion, was crushed, Elizabeth was questioned about her role, and imprisoned first in the Tower of London, and later under house arrest in Woodstock. Here, she stayed for almost a year, only being recalled to court when Mary appeared to be on the verge of childbirth. She was meant to bear witness to the birth. If Mary and Charles survived, Elizabeth would be unable to claim that the newborn was illegitimate, while if both mother and child died, she could be there to ensure a smooth secession. As it turns out, neither of these potential realities occurred. Mary was not pregnant after all. Some historians suggest that Mary had been subject to a false pregnancy, which I didn't even realise was a thing until researching this episode, that may have been caused by her overwhelming desire to bear an heir. Maybe that was why Henry VIII put on so much weight. Whatever the reason, Mary no longer seemed capable of becoming pregnant. She was nearing her 40th birthday, and while it was of course still possible, it was increasingly unlikely. Elizabeth seemed destined to succeed her sister to the throne. It was shortly after this pregnancy scare that Elizabeth and the magician and wiseman, John Dee, got into hot water over the Queen's horoscope, which I'll go into detail on later. Despite this, Elizabeth appears to remain in relatively good favour with her sister until the latter's death in 1558, at which point Elizabeth took the throne at the youthful age of 25. She would remain there for 44 years. Well, not just on the throne, you understand, she moved around a bit. Elizabeth's religious beliefs are somewhat debated by historians, much like how the Pope is somewhat a fan of Jesus. While she did settle on Protestantism, the so-called Elizabethan settlement was far less radical than some expected. I've heard some arguments that Elizabeth was on the fence about which side of the theological divide she wished to land on. She was, after all, technically illegitimate in the eyes of both faiths, although the Protestant illegitimacy was much less established. I've read arguments that Elizabeth was leaning towards reconciliation with Rome, 
only for Pope Paul IV to make it very easy for her and declare that she had no right to the throne she sat on. This obviously prevented her from submitting to Roman authority, because then she would essentially be giving up her crown. How true this actually is, is for much more knowledgeable historians than I. In either case, the Elizabethan religious settlement settled the religious issue for the time being. Despite the later fame bordering on worship that her unmarried and therefore presumed virginity later gathered, initially at least Elizabeth courted several suitors, both foreign and domestic. The first was her childhood friend, Robert Dudley, the son of Edward's Lord Protector, who was executed by Mary for his support of Lady Jane Grey. Dudley's wife, Amy Robsett, appears to have been stricken by a, quote, malady in one of her breasts, end quote, and her time on earth was severely limited. This limit could accurately be measured by how long it took for her to tumble down a flight of stairs. Despite the coroner declaring that her death was accidental, many people suspected that Dudley had sped his wife's journey to the grave with the intention of marrying the Queen. He never did, despite the Queen's apparent affection towards him, and her significant animosity towards his next wife. Elizabeth would negotiate with several foreign princes on the issue of marriage, but all this amounted to naught. As we covered way back in episode 8, Mary, Queen of Scots, found herself facing significant opposition from her powerful Protestant nobility, which were helpfully backed by Elizabeth. To remind you, Mary married an increasingly unpopular Darnley, who murdered her favourite courtier, and who was in turn murdered in an unsolved conspiracy, widely believed to have been orchestrated by the Earl of Bothwell, who Mary subsequently married, annoying everyone and forcing her to abdicate and flee south, where Elizabeth imprisoned her for almost two decades. Why would Elizabeth have Mary imprisoned? Well, Mary had repeatedly claimed the throne of England based on her descent from Margaret Tudor, Elizabeth's aunt, and was dangerously popular amongst Elizabeth's Catholic subjects. Elizabeth's fears were proven true when the so-called Rising of the North occurred in November 1569. This rebellion was headed by the Earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland, who raised a host of 4,600 men and captured Durham, with the intent to crown Mary Queen of Scots as Mary Queen of England, and return the country to the bosom of the Catholic Church. This army survived for all of one month, before being scattered after a defeat against royalist forces. Northumberland was captured by the regent of young James VI, the Earl of Morton, who handed the rebellious noble back to Elizabeth, who promptly had him beheaded. Possibly spurred on by this rebellion, Pope Pius V issued a bull in 1570, the Regnan in Excelsis, which I read an excerpt of at the beginning of the episode. This called on all Catholics within England to disobey Elizabeth and overthrow her, reinforcing that she was excommunicated. This seems to be the time where Elizabeth and Catholicism stop being cordial. There were a number of plots against the Queen, and Elizabeth's legislation against Catholics became harsher and harsher. In 1581, converting English subjects to Catholicism became a treasonous offence, carrying the punishment of execution, which many Catholic missionaries from the continent suffered. Much like Elizabeth had been for Protestant descent during her sister's reign, so too was Mary, Queen of Scots, the focal point for Catholic opposition to Elizabeth. Whether she was informed and involved in all of these plots, some of them or none of them, Mary was too dangerous to be left alive. After vocal and 
seemingly sincere resistance to the advice of her counsellors, who advocated for Mary's death, Elizabeth signed the death warrant of her cousin. Mary, Queen of Scots, mother to Elizabeth's eventual successor, was beheaded at Fotheringhay Castle on the 8th of February 1587, after 19 years in custody. As Elizabeth aged, ill health took its toll. She had been scarred from a case of smallpox in 1562, and supposedly had such a fear of dentists, and a corresponding love of sweets, that serious tooth decay made her unintelligible to those unfamiliar with her way of speaking. The French ambassador described her thus, Her teeth are very yellow and unequal, and on the left side, less than on the right. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. Sir Walter Raleigh was a little bit more diplomatic than the diplomat, saying that she was, quote, a lady whom time had surprised, end quote, which is quite lovely. Elizabeth never officially named an heir, but secret talks between herself and James, as well as members of their respective governments, began quite early on. Some historians place the beginning of these arrangements from before the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, based on a series of English loans and gifts to the Scottish king. Elizabeth I died on the 24th of March, 1603, having ruled for 44 years as England's first recognised Queen Regnant. Within hours of her death, members of her government proclaimed James Stuart as King of England, heralding the Stuart era and the Union of the Crowns. So there we have a brief summary of the life of Queen Elizabeth I. Now we can take a look at some key events involving magic and witchcraft during her reign, starting with the Statute Against Conjurations, Enchantments and Witchcrafts. The 1563 Act was, in many ways, a revival of Henry VIII's 1542 Act, which had been repealed by Edward. Elizabeth's Act was, however, somewhat more lenient than her father's. Where Henry had defined a range of magical acts as worthy of capital punishment, Elizabeth specified that those convicted would only face immediate execution if their spells had led to another person's death. Otherwise, if their witchcraft had caused the death of cattle or the wastage of others' property, for the first conviction they would be imprisoned for one year without bail, being pilloried for six hours once a quarter. If they were convicted of this a second time, then they would face the death penalty. If sorcery had been used to discover treasure or stolen items, or to seduce another person, or otherwise harm them without killing them, they were to be imprisoned for a full year and pilloried every quarter. Upon being convicted twice, they would be imprisoned for life and have their property forfeit to the crown. Some historians have argued that the return of Protestant ministers and officials who had fled persecution or had been exiled during the reign of Queen Mary played a key role in the passing of this law, but there is little indication that this was indeed the case. While in many ways the Elizabethan Act is much more lenient than her father's, with execution only being delivered either in cases of murder or for repeat offences, this is still treated as a severe crime. The government's concern with witchcraft and sorcery may have been made explicit in 1563, but the Elizabethan court was just as wary of supernatural attack as those of the other Tudors. The most famous such attack was discovered in the summer of 1578, when the Privy Council was made aware of a collection of wax figurines, 
dressed to resemble the Queen and members of her court, with the names of the targets scrawled in ink on the foreheads. As we covered in the episodes on ancient curses, this sort of image magic often involved the image being pierced or damaged in some way, or being deposited somewhere unsavoury. And so with this Tudor case. The dolls had been found in a dung heap. The Elizabethan court was briefly shaken by this discovery, and such was its value as a topic of gossip that even foreign dignitaries reported on the find. The Spanish soldier turned diplomat Bernardino de Mendoza was particularly descriptive, so I'll read an excerpt of his dispatches. When I read this out on the History of England, I bowed to David's traditions and attempted some sort of vaguely European accent, however I won't subject you to that this time. The central figure had the word Elizabeth written on the forehead, and the side figures were dressed like her counsellors, and were covered with a great variety of different signs, the left side of the images being transfixed with a large quantity of pig's bristles, as if it was some kind of witchcraft. Now, despite it being the talk of the town, the investigation led by the Lord Mayor and Bishop of London failed to bring any suspects in for questioning. A few years later, in 1583, a Catholic conspiracy was revealed. One of the conspirators, Francis Frockmorton, had been acting as a middleman between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Catholic discontents in England and on the continent. He was arrested, and when tortured, he admitted to being involved in a plot to overthrow Elizabeth and install Mary, coordinated with our friend Mendoza. Now, he later retracted this confession, but he was still executed, while Mendoza was ejected from the kingdom. When being tortured, however, Throckmorton revealed a list of co-conspirators. Now, these were mostly Catholic holdouts or discontent nobles, but the list went on to include a series of unexpected individuals such as, quote, Old Bertles, the Great Devil, Darnley, the Sorcerer, Maud Toogood, Enchantress, the Old Witch of Ramsbury, end quote, and, quote, Gregson, the North Tale Teller, he who was one of them three that stole the Earl of Northumberland's head from the turrets of York, end quote. As we covered earlier, Northumberland was one of the Catholic lords that tried to rebel against Protestant Elizabeth during the Rising of the North in 1569. When he was captured and returned to England by Morton, he was beheaded and his head placed on the walls of York. This head had apparently gone missing, stolen, some worried for nefarious means. The fact that several practitioners of magic were included in this list is interesting in itself. Either they were involved in the conspiracy, or, more likely, the tortured conspirators were grasping at any name they could think of. As we touched on last time, Henry VIII counted poison amongst his most feared enemies. It was secret, invisible, and hard to fight. So too did Elizabeth fear the poisoner, and aside from more mundane protections such as food tasters and loyal chefs, she relied on more esoteric defences. A Beezer stone was a natural deposit found in the intestines of certain animals, compacted and said to have the power to negate all poisons. The term Beezer apparently comes from the Farsi word for antidote, and in the 16th century their effectiveness was well believed. Elizabeth was said to have one attached to a bracelet, which she used regularly on her wine to negate any toxin within. There are records of a court case between the buyer of a Beezer stone and its seller. 
The buyer had found that the Beza stone was not genuine, although the record unhelpfully leaves out how he found this out, and he was claiming a full refund of the £100 he'd spent on it. It goes without saying that this is quite a large amount of money for the time. The court, however, ruled against him, as the seller had neither guaranteed that it was a genuine Beza stone, nor could the buyer prove that the seller had knowingly sold a fake. Now, this may seem silly to us, but surprisingly, it has been found that certain types of Beza stone actually remove a certain type of poison, namely arsenic, from certain solutions. Granted, this is under lab conditions, and incredibly specific, but this does at least give us the idea of how this belief in an all-curing stone came to be, although you have to wonder who had the idea to combine the stone from the gut of an animal with some arsenic. Along with this Beza stone, Elizabeth was said to carry a unicorn horn walking stick and have a unicorn horn goblet, which were meant to detect poison and shatter upon contact, respectively. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The courtly abhorrence of magic had some exceptions, though, with the most notable being John Dee, a well-educated Welshman whose family had been in the service of the Tudors since they took the throne, and Elizabeth could count on the services of John Dee throughout her life. Dee was born in London in 1527 to a Welsh family, his father Roland serving Henry VII. Dee was something of a bright spark, and later attended Cambridge, where he apparently studied for 18 hours of each day, allowing two hours for food and socialising, with another four for sleep. At the age of 20, he left England to travel the world, first visiting the Low Countries, and then on to Louvain and Paris, absorbing, quote, a considerable amount of astrological knowledge, end quote. At this point, his reputation was such that he was offered the post of Professor of Mathematics at the University of Paris, although he rejected the offer and returned home to England as a renowned man of learning. His astrological work brought him some controversy. Astrology was always something of a grey area when it came to heresy. Something to do with interpreting God's plan in the stars got people's backs up. As we've already mentioned, he made the error of sharing Queen Mary's horoscope to Elizabeth, which got him in a bit of hot water. Dee, along with two other men in the service of Princess Elizabeth, were arrested on the order of the Privy Council. They had been accused by John Prideaux and George Ferris of the charge of attempting to foresee the future of the Queen, the King her husband, and the Princess Elizabeth. This charge later developed into that of conjuring and witchcraft, after one of Ferris' children died and another fell blind, with the immediate suspicion that these wise men had used their powers in revenge against their accusers. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography suggests that the root of the accusations was in Dee and Ferrer's personal life. They were both involved in the same theatrical productions, and it is possible that any antagonism they shared there would carry over to court. Dee managed to survive the charges with little more than a slap on the wrist, convincing Bishop Edmund Bonner of his Catholic beliefs and avoiding the stake. 
Upon Mary's death and Elizabeth's accession, Dee was instructed to scour the stars for the most fortuitous date for the Queen's coronation, and from then on the wise man was brought in to advise the Queen on a vast array of topics. His knowledge on all matters meant that he was brought in to assist with treating the Queen's illness in 1571, advising the government on calendar reform in the mid-1580s, and in determining which lands the Queen could rightfully be called sovereign. In this, he expanded on a piece of Welsh folklore, the voyage of Madog, Ab Owen Gwynedd, and declared that he, as well as King Arthur, had conquered vast swathes of the North American continent, thereby giving Elizabeth historical claims, which is incredibly convenient, you have to say. Dee was also consulted on more arcane matters. He was brought in to protect the Queen from magical attack, particularly during the cases we just heard about, as well as being consulted on the significance of a newly seen comet. For John Dee, there was no separation between mundane and supernatural knowledge, so we see Dee frequently referred to as conducting experiments in alchemy, as well as attempting to summon angels in order to, in the words of one historian, bridge the terrestrial and the supercelestial, and ascend to true wisdom. It seems that Dee believed he'd succeeded in speaking to the angel Raphael, through his assistant Edward Kelly, who taught Dee God's language. This would allow him to, quote, transform human knowledge in the declining world simultaneously. Sadly, God's language turned out to conform to no known rules of grammar, syntax, or pronunciation, and to be understandable only as the world actually ended. So a bit of a letdown then. After this, Dee travelled with Kelly across Europe, visiting the courts of King Stefan of Poland and the Emperor Rudolf in Prague, and, with some success, advocating their spiritual conferences. Kelly had grown his own reputation at this point, and was widely sought after for his knowledge of alchemy. Naturally, this would be quite a lucrative career, and around this time, Kelly informed Dee that the angel Uriel had ordered them to share their possessions, including their wives which they apparently did. Shortly after this, the two went their separate ways, with Dee returning to England with a pregnant wife, and Kelly becoming the court alchemists of the Emperor. As to be expected, this behaviour did not please everyone. Aside from the events during Mary's reign, Dee's house was vandalised and his great library largely destroyed during his travels, after he seriously annoyed his colleagues by abandoning the more practical and lucrative study of cartography to focus on the esoteric. From here on, his academic career was essentially over. Elizabeth did grant her old favourite a position at Christ's College Manchester, but his new colleagues largely despised him. After Elizabeth's death and the accession of James I, we find him petitioning the new king to clear him of accusations of, quote, being a conjurer, or caller, or invocator of devils, end quote, which does not appear to have been granted. Dee finally died of natural causes in 1608, after being reduced to poverty and forced to sell his possessions to eat. So far, we've largely covered more specific cases of sorcery, involving or targeting the upper echelons of the Tudor state, up to and including the Queen. So it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to learn that there are a number of high-ranking individuals with a particular axe to grind against those who made use of such supernatural abilities. One such man, writing in 1559, was the Bishop of Salisbury, John Jewell, who lamented that, quote, the number of witches and sorcerers had everywhere become enormous. This kind of people these last few years has marvellously increased, end quote. 
Jewell was a prolific writer in the early years of Elizabeth's reign, where he defended the Elizabethan settlement and welcomed all challengers who wished to try and evidence Roman Catholic theology based solely on scripture and the writings of the first centuries of Christianity. How much of a role Jewell, who does seem to have been held in high esteem, played in the enactment of the 1562 Act is unclear, but judging by his earlier statement, he most likely supported its enforcement. Despite never receiving support from Elizabeth's government and often attracting persecution, the Puritans were vocal and active opponents of the many evils they saw in the world. In the 1580s, a Puritan priest called John Darrell conducted a series of exorcisms and witch trials, which were actively disputed by the authorities, it has to be said. When exactly he acquired his reputation for spiritual healing isn't clear, but at least by 1586 he was well known enough that one woman, Catherine Wright, had his services recommended to her, for Miss Wright was possessed by a demon. Darrell was known as, quote, a man of hope for the relieving of those that were distressed in this sort, end quote. And after two sessions with Wright over several weeks, Darrell claimed far and wide that he had expelled the demons from her. When Wright accused a local woman of causing her bewitchment, Darrell attempted to have the woman prosecuted for witchcraft under the 1562 law, which brought him into conflict with a local magistrate. Darrell's fame remained fairly local until the exorcism of Thomas Darling, a teenage demoniac, that is, someone possessed by evil spirits, in the town of Burton-upon-Trent in May 1596. Once cured, his bewitcher was brought to trial and convicted, and although spared execution, would later die in prison. Darrell's apparent successes were spread far and wide, an example of religious purity succeeding where folk healers and secular physicians had failed. The Most Wonderful and True Story, a pamphlet published in June 1597, contained notes from the exorcism of Darling, while a later account was published on Darrell's previous work. Later that year, Darrell was in Nottingham, where he exercised an apprentice musician, William Summers, in front of a large crowd. Possibly due to the success of this event and his growing fame, Darrell gained the role of preacher at St Mary's Cathedral in Nottingham, an ancient church that still stands today. However, rather awkwardly, Summers claimed that he'd been repossessed, once again, by demons. Darrell, possibly pleased with another opportunity to prove himself, exorcised the apprentice, only for Summers to be visited by demonic bailiffs once again and repossessed by Dom Tish. This seems to have kept happening for several weeks, Summers would complain that he was just full to the brim with demons, and Darrell would come to the rescue, only for the same to happen the next week. His sister, Mary Cooper, also got in on the action, claiming that she too was being repeatedly possessed, and both Cooper and Summers began to specify who was inflicting this upon them. At least 13 people were denounced and arrested, although all but two were released without charge. This is where Darrell's star, which had previously been rising, crashed to the ground. One of the two people who had not been released, Alice Freeman, was a relative of an alderman and justice of the peace, William Freeman, who appears to have not taken kindly to the slander and imprisonment of his family member. Summers was himself brought up on charges of witchcraft, and seems to have been imprisoned until at least February 1598, when he confessed. Not to witchcraft, of course, but to fraud. 
stating that he had repeatedly faked his possessions and his exorcisms, and evidenced this by feigning his convulsions and speaking in tongues before the mayor and alderman. So, Daryl was in something of a pickle. The natural suspicion, which was expressed by local magistrates, was that Daryl had been in cahoots with the fraudsters, willingly playing along for fame and fortune. The Archbishop of York, Matthew Hutton, established a commission of local lay figures and clerics to establish the truth of the matter. This commission, by virtue of its members, was largely supportive of Darrell, indicating quite how popular he was within the city. The commissions declared that Summers had, despite his confession and acting class, been genuinely possessed and Darrell had genuinely cured him. But Darrell was not in the clear. His opponents still numbered among the magistrates and legal officers of York, who began to cross-examine Darrell's former patients. This revealed a vast amount of people who were mentally ill or otherwise susceptible to manipulation, and others who had been paid and coached on how to act possessed. During the trial of one suspected witch, Margaret Roper, one local magistrate ordered her released due to the revelations of Darrell's conduct, threatening the Puritan with imprisonment if he did not cease his activities. Of course he didn't, and instead swore that he would, quote, expose all the witches in England, end quote. Instead, his opponents lobbied Hutton, the archbishop, to have his preaching license revoked, and further complained to John Whitgift, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Hearing these complaints, Whitgift summoned Darrell to London, where he was arrested alongside his accomplices. Darrell remained imprisoned for more than a year, before being found guilty of fraud in May 1599. What followed was a fascinating war of words between Darrell's opponents and supporters, many of whom were highly placed on both sides, which lasted for another four years, long after he had been quietly released from prison just a few months after being found guilty. His career as an exorcist was, however, over, but he continued to write. One aspect of Darrell's work that we can all of us appreciate, is that his writings inspired the names of the demons in Shakespeare's King Lear, such as Flibbertigibbet, which is an amazing name. Another Puritan priest was George Gifford of Essex, who published treaties on the dangers of witchcraft in 1587 and 1593. These texts were meant to inform the common people of the dangers posed by magic and those who naively considered it to be harmless. One chapter of his earlier work is devoted to explaining how the devil and his demons can appear in the material world and seduce otherwise good Christians to evil works, decrying the futility and vanity of those that denied this fact. It was the actions of these demons, allowed by God to test the faith of Christians, that led to the popular belief in imps and fairies, Gifford wrote, a demonization we will cover next episode. Sir Edmund Anderson Queen Elizabeth's Lord Chief Justice told a jury at a witchcraft trial in 1602 that, quote, The land is full of witches. They abound in all places. I have hanged five or six and twenty of them. There is no man here can speak more of them than myself. Anderson is a figure worth expanding upon. In the defence of the established order of things, he was less concerned with something as woolly as a fair trial, and more interested in getting trials over and done with, with speedy convictions. He was rude and churlish to his peers, reprimanding the Attorney General, Sir Edward Coke, at one point for his perceived flaws in the latter's argument. At one point, he was said to have climbed down from his bench, 
and physically disarmed a rowdy defendant who was waving a sword around, which I have to admit I'd like to see. However, Anderson was less inclined to jump on a bandwagon. He took a substantial risk in 1592 when he published a protest against arbitrary imprisonment of the Queen's subjects merely on the order of the Privy Council. This was during the height of the war with Spain, and so by attempting to interfere with the defence of the realm, he opened himself up to potential charges of treason. This protest was later used by Coke to implement the writ of habeas corpus in 1628, which sought to prevent unlawful imprisonment without charge or trial. Coke himself seemed to have been a firm believer in the existence and power of witches, defining a witch as, quote, a person that hath conference with the devil, to consult with him or to do some act, end quote. We'll come back to Coke when we cover the years of James Stewart's reign in England. Neither he nor Anderson were the only figures in the legal profession to espouse a belief in witches. One judge, speaking in 1599, said that he had heard that a witch's hair could not be cut or removed, that they produced no shadow when in direct sunlight, and that witchcraft was a hereditary ability. It may seem that the stage was set for Elizabethan England to be the site of terrible, bloodthirsty witch panics that would rival events on the continent, which were occurring in the same period. We have legal codes that explicitly define the crime of witchcraft and demand execution in certain circumstances. We have a monarch who seems to have been targeted for supernatural attack, which as we've seen with King James of Scotland is quite the motivator. The legal profession is headed by chief justices and attorney generals who proudly proclaim their own efforts in hunting and executing the servants of the devil. And yet, not only are large-scale witch panics absent from the Elizabethan era, but during the reign of Gloriana we have one of the more famous and influential opponents of the very belief in witchcraft and magic. I speak, of course, of Reginald Scott. Scott published his treatise, The Discovery of Witchcraft, in 1584, and it certainly pulls no punches in its condemnation of witch belief. Taking a similar stance as the German physician Johann Weyer, who we covered way back in Sparks and Kindling, I think, Scott defined witches as either innocent victims of rampant ignorance and legal barbarity, or mentally ill and senile persons deluded by their own imagination, or by their Catholicism. Magical powers, either conducted by so-called witches or performed by respected individuals like Dee and Kelly, were little more than prestigious juggling. Illusions created by human trickery, or simply strange but natural causes. For Scott, demons could not possibly collude with human beings, as they had no corporeal form and were purely spiritual, and he drew from scripture to support these views. To suggest that witches could, quote, exceed in quantity, quality, and number all the miracles that Christ wrought upon the earth, when Christ himself said, the works that I do no man else may accomplish, why should we think that a foolish old woman can do them all and many more? Taking aim at witch hunters, Scott declared that the only people who took such things seriously were children, fools, melancholic persons, and papists. I would love to be a fly on the wall when Scott told Daryl or Gifford this. Scott was quite efficient in his writings, truth be told, since he managed to combine a strong argument against the existence of witchcraft with some good old-fashioned Elizabethan Catholic bashing. He wrote, I see no difference between these and popish conjurations. 
for they agree in order, words, and matter, differing in no circumstance, but that the papists do it without shame, openly, the other do it hogamoga secretly. Despite the widespread publication of the discovery of witchcraft, Scott's arguments found many opponents, and not just from the Catholic Church that he so battered in his writings. Essentially, the basis of Discovery's argument, that the spiritual world could have little influence on the material one, was extremely difficult to reconcile with the commonly held tenets of 16th century Christianity, either Catholic or Protestant. Despite every page of the Discovery referencing the Bible or the writings of the saints and his passionate enthusiasm for the Holy Spirit being able to influence the world, his works were extremely isolated in the contemporary debate on witchcraft, and he had some very prestigious opponents. Most notably, one James Stewart, aged 31, from Edinburgh, wrote his treatise, Demonology, partly with the intention to refute the opinions of Scott. There is a tradition which does lack contemporary evidence, it has to be said, that upon inheriting the English throne in 1603, James ordered all surviving manuscripts of Scott's discovery to be burnt by the public hangman. Whether or not this ever actually happened, it does seem to sum up the general attitude amongst witchcraft scholars towards Reginald Scott. Next time, we will hear more about the Elizabethan trials and the more general beliefs amongst those common people that Gifford and the like were so concerned about. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. Financial support is always welcome and can be given at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.